This is Wayne Jernell, editor of Theory and Research in Social Education, and this episode of Visions of Education features a TRSC published author. Enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. It's funny, I was uh, I had coffee with my sister this weekend, and we were talking, our kids were playing, we were talking about the last couple of years and how like weird it was, and she reminded me of the time when she was out walking, playing with her her they're at the the playground her and her daughter and the kids were playing a curious game it was a tag game in which the it instead of it the person capturing people it was donald trump and the kids were trying to get away from donald trump this is a these are kids like under 10 years old and they've incorporated this into their their play man it was um, I mean, hearing, obviously I didn't see it, but hearing about it was just like, whoa. Yeah, that is interesting. And, and to think that, that, that kids have that even notion of politics at that time, I, I don't think I, I had a very developed notion of politics in elementary school at all. I do remember we had like kind of crappy school elections where we just voted the way our parents did. So it, oh, yeah. my elementary school was like, it was like destruction. It was like 92% for, I think the 1988 election was, was my first like elementary one. I was in uh, lower elementary and Michael Dukakis got destroyed at my school, um, even though that's who I voted for. And yeah, so I don't think I had, I remember playing games, right? Where you had heroes and villains and I'm, I'm fearful to think like I played, I don't know if we played like robbers and cops or if we played cowboys and indians which both concepts have all kinds of really problematic aspects to them but i suspect we did because it was probably whatever was passed down to us and we didn't really think about it and so yeah i i I wonder like what kind of information kids are, are are learning in that type of situation and what it means to them right would would all kids see this as a game I mean, how, how would kids in different positions view, view something like that? I don't know. There was a, apparently a lot of discussion about skin color in this game in how some people would have been safe. It was, uh, my sister was just, it was a, just, it was a fascinating like look into her community and what these kids are, are afraid of uh, in right. Donald Trump deporting them was part of it. And so that's why the, the game was the game. Right. Right. And it's interesting how even like very real threats that kids could like make games around them. I remember when the pandemic hit, I my I assigned a, a documentary on the 1918 influenza. And right, like that was that influenza really impacted kids, right? A lot of children died in that influenza, sadly. And they they had like songs that they sang, like about like influ. Inza. And so there's a song where like Inza was like a bird that flew in the window and they oh. had this whole, yeah. And they had this whole like song that they played. I, I'd have to go back and listen to it, but it's interesting the way even children like cope with very difficult 
problems in the world. Very, you know, and that, and that's, I think, to, to give a credit to kids that in their own ways, they can, of course, address some of these very difficult issues, right? They have yeah. to process them somehow. So it's kind of not surprising that it comes out with through play, which can kind of be a subversive, you know, activity for kids in their own way. I agree. I agree. When we talked about, so the, the discussion we're going to have, I know, is uh, today looking at, well, do you know what? Before I even preface anymore, why don't we just bring our guest in? We do have a guest today and we're super excited. So why don't we invite our guest into our discussion so we can really have it? I think that's a good idea. This is about the, about the right time. So we would like to welcome into the podcast, Paul Yoder. Welcome. All right. Thank you so much, gentlemen. We are thrilled to have you, Paul Yoder. Paul Yoder, before we move forward, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who is Paul Yoder? Yeah, that's a great question. I am a teacher. I'm a teacher educator. I have a background as both a middle school social studies teacher, and I also taught high school newcomer students, students who were recent immigrants and focused on learning English. And then I have been focusing on history education, thinking about teaching and learning of history through my grad school days and now as a teacher educator. So t- tell me more about your, your teaching experience. What was the classroom like for you? Yeah, thanks. I taught in a very culturally and linguistically diverse um, community. Um, so I'm in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Uh, that's where my university is now. And that's where I taught before going to grad school. We have something fun like 40 different languages um, that are spoken. Harrisonburg's actually a pretty small town. It's also home to James Madison University, our much larger neighbor nearby. And so I am very passionate about, I really enjoyed working with folks from across the globe, really. The majority of the students who are labeled as English learners are Spanish speakers. Um, So we definitely have a significant Latino community or Latinx community. And one other comment that I'll just recognize is that in the last few years, Harrisonburg, like many communities across the country, has been impacted by changes in refugee resettlement policy um, because we are home to a refugee resettlement office. And that's a big part of the Harrisonburg story over the last few decades as well. So one thing you're going to talk about today, um, which, which it seems like, you know, your, your teaching experience probably helped you as a researcher, right? To, to think about, I mean, teaching, I think is for a lot of uh, people a way to oftentimes, if our, especially if our schools are culturally, racially, linguistically diverse, we have to grow, right? To be good, responsive teachers. And that hopefully makes us more conscious researchers with, with working with different groups. And so you did a um, study here where I'm hoping your teaching experience is really helpful that was published in Theory and Research in Social Education, which is no small feat. Congratulations mm-hmm. on your publication. Thank you so much. The article is titled, he wants to get rid of all the Muslims, Mexican-American and Muslim students' use of history regarding candidate Trump. So this is a topic that people for over four years spent a lot of time thinking about in Trump, although some of the larger issues around these two groups probably have a lot longer histories than just these last four years. 
Can you can you tell us about the the nature and impetus of the study? Absolutely. So one of the connections you were making was from teaching to researchers. So that was definitely central to what ignited uh, this project. I was actually teaching seventh grade U.S. history when I left the classroom and went to grad school, and so I specifically chose to do this research in that same context, obviously not the same classrooms, but the same kind of community and the same content area with students who are similar ages. And one of the pieces that really I talk about in the, in the article is the fact that Trump and the 2016, this was the fall of 2015, so it was primary season, really inserted himself or inserted themselves into the classroom. So when I was proposing this study, I did not have the presidential election. I did not have sort of current events or political realities in mind or on the page in terms of what I gave to my committee. And similarly, this, the seventh grade U.S. history curriculum in Virginia really doesn't talk about this either. It's very much of a nation state building sort of second half of, of U.S. history um, traditional curriculum. So what I found through, the, through listening to these students, especially the four who are highlighted in the piece, is that these current events really were informing and maybe infiltrating the teaching and learning of history for these students. And we can talk more about what that looked like. Yeah. So, and I'd love to know how you went about this study, right? It's it's such a challenge sometimes, I think, for uh, teacher educators and researchers to actually get into classrooms, right? And then spend time with students. And for many reasons, right? Schools are busy places. They're concerned with, with us making more work for them. But then also there's just a lot of protectionism in schools, right? And, and principals who aren't sure what the heck's going on in a research study. So te- yeah, so, so tell us about spending this time in, in these classrooms and what it looked like. The study was, I conducted the study over about three months uh, during the fall of way back in 2000, 2015, excuse me. And so in terms of access, it is interesting because I have gotten that response a number of times over the years where, you know, other researchers or educators are saying, how did you even get permission or who were the gatekeepers in this process? So in this case, having sort of that insider teacher experience or positionality was extremely instrumental. So I do recognize that and I'm thankful for that. I also realized, and I don't write a lot about this in this particular piece, um, but certainly in the, in the context of my dissertation, I also recognized that when I was presenting myself to students then, to these seventh graders, so I first went and observed in two classrooms, and then obviously had to get permission from the district, IRB, and then in these two individual teachers as well. Once I was in those spaces, I was then inviting students, can I interview you? And so I did individual interviews, and then I also did a focus group in each of these classes. So did two different focus group 
interviews as well. And so I have, in reflecting on this, I have certainly identified the fact that in the one class, I had very few female students who were consenting to be participants. So I definitely, you know, am under the impression that my identity as a young male who was not a teacher at that point, was not sort of a, you know, a member of that school community, certainly likely influenced um, how I was being perceived by the students and then perhaps their families as they were talking about what it might mean to, to participate. But thankfully, I did receive participation from 11 different students, five in one class and six in the other, and was able to sample across the different racial, linguistic, ethnic groups in the school community. What type of questions were you asking the students throughout your, throughout your research? Yeah, so I, um, in anticipating our conversation today, I pulled off my, from my shelf um, Terry Epstein's 2009 book. So it's a very sort of a landmark resource in my development as a researcher. And so she talks about interpreting national history, or that's the title of the book, actually. But um, she writes about especially comparing white students and black students and how they describe U.S. history, how they attribute historical significance uh, in particular. And so I drew very specifically, intentionally uh, from her work. And so I was asking some pretty, some pretty basic questions or some questions that many researchers have used, like who are the people who are significant in U.S. history, asking these seventh graders to nominate, to give me names of people who they thought were important, and then similarly asking what events in U.S. history are important, and then asking some sort of context questions like, what have you learned in history class this year? What do you enjoy that your teacher does? How is history class this year different from last year? The one other one that I'll just mention is asking, what are the sources of history that you trust? So that was another one. And so those then provided sort of this wealth of information to then analyze using different research questions and these different frameworks that one of which led to this article. Those, I love those questions, right? I mean, just digging into to getting a sense of like, if you ask students, what, what are you taking away from all of this, right? Um, that's kind of what I did in my dissertation too, right? Like I, I asked, um, except it was seniors in high school, my high school government course, I did multiple levels of like surveys and interviews with them, just trying to figure out like, so what does this all mean to you, right? Like, do you feel like a citizen? Do you feel like you're going to do citizen stuff now, right? If that's the purpose of social <laughs> studies? I love that. Yeah, are you going to do citizen stuff? They're like, uh, no, probably not. Um, but no, they, they actually had a variety of responses and it was a really interesting, but it is interesting to see um, what students take away. And, and it's a hard thing to get at too, because they, they can't, you can't always like express or remember everything that affects you. Right. I, I explicitly know as a teacher, students saying they haven't learned stuff and knowing that they have, because <laughs> I taught the lesson to them, hearing them claim that like two years after I taught it, I'm like, no, you learned all this. You just have completely forgotten it. Uh, it's of very course. like involved. You did a project on it. Like, oh yeah. 
but it is still, you still get a lot from these, right? Like you get a lot of their implications. And so, especially at a time when, you know, minoritized students, Muslim students, Mexican-American students who were specifically targeted with, Mm -hmm. you know, with racist, Islamophobic language from the person who, you know, we tell kids to look up to the president, right? And maybe that's ended now. Maybe we, we, maybe we don't, aren't so carelessly just making that reference. How, yeah. How were they handling this political trauma, which they must have been very aware of at this time with their social studies class that's helping to prepare them for this political world by learning things like history. Yeah, so that's, you know, that's the question that led to this paper uh, very specifically, because I was realizing, okay, we are in this political context, and what am I hearing then in trying to make sense of these comments that students were making? A few of them were during classroom observations, but obviously those spaces are being driven by the curriculum And so most of these comments about then candidate Trump were in our focus group and individual interviews. And so students were very much directly refuting what they were hearing. Some of it was through sort of discrediting Donald Trump as a messenger saying he's racist or he's stupid. And some of it was taking the message specifically and saying, he is saying that, uh, you know, for example, both of the Muslim American students who I was interviewing in December at that point, December 2015, very directly said, Trump says that Muslims are terrorists. I am a Muslim. I am not a terrorist. That is not what being a Muslim means. So it was both about sort of in terms of rhetorical style, it was both about saying, no, this person is not credible, and also about refuting specific claims or very discriminatory, derogatory assertions that were, of course, national news at that point. What a terrible thing for these kids to have to say, like, that this is the guy who's became president who's saying this stuff, and they feel that, like, I don't know. It just, it, it I, it's, <laughs> sorry. It just, it, <laughs> well, it is very, um, if we're going to use small words, it's very sad, right? Um, <laughs> it's not, it's not, yeah, it's not acceptable. There we go. That's, that's, <laughs> maybe that's, that's another good. way of yeah, putting it. That's a better, uh, I apologize. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm a big proponent of you cussing more, Michael. So that, that was fine with me. <laughs> well, I, that's sort of the surprising thing, right? That wasn't actually one of the approaches. the The word "stupid" was yelled at, uh, yelled out. Sorry, during uh, during I think it was during a focus group where the students. Where, I mean, now I'm remembering it definitely was during one of the focus group interviews because the students start playing off each other, right? Like they don't know what they're allowed to say about presidential candidates or about, I mean, I, I'm also recognizing when I'm interviewing them, like I'm the white man in the room. So there's also this, like, they don't know what they want to say to a white man about another white man, right? Like, so there's lots of layers here. And that's something that I continue to, to want to think about 
one of the other pieces, another layer that they did use sort of in terms of rhetorical devices is actually, and this is very much front and center because this was in the context of teaching and learning about history, they were also using historical examples of discrimination to say this current situation we're living with is similar to this historical situation, which I have been told is not acceptable. And then, of course, the algorithm then computes to say, and the current situation is not acceptable, right? So, for example, one of the Mexican-American students at one point was saying that Trump is like the KKK. To read just a brief quote here, he said, I mean, he is pretty much like Hitler because Hitler didn't like some sort of people. It was great then because as this was a one-on-one -on -one interview. So it, as I sort of dug into that with this student who I uh, call Felix as a pseudonym, I said, okay, well, the KKK is a group. How is it different when it's just Donald Trump as one person? And at one point, he even clarified to say, no, I don't actually think Trump will kill people like Hitler did. But, you know, this is still not acceptable. There's still too much similarity here. And so there was a lot of nuance, but there was also sort of this almost like a, a knee jerk response, like, OK, I'm going to use this rhetorical device to signify just how serious this is, because you know, I've been told it, it's common knowledge that someone like Hitler or what the KKK did is not viewed as acceptable. Yeah, I, I think also one challenge about the Trump years is that it's not, it's again, not like these thing issues are new. Islamophobia is a long running theme in the United States and Mexican American you know, anti-Mexican-American racism is a long-running theme and, and you know, stealing of land and, and the repositioning of who, who is American and who lives here and all of those things are long-standing issues. And it's kind of the thing is, is that Trump just said a lot of the quiet things out loud, right? Which, which does, does kind of beg me to think a little bit about, about, you know, both how these students had to deal with the trauma at younger ages because those quiet things were said out loud, but that the trauma was probably coming at some point either way. And I'm not trying to like make light of, of, you know, when it happens, right. Or, or like say, but, but, you know, a lot of these things are unfortunately like very characteristic of American politics and American policies um, towards both of those groups. And so I, I kind of wonder like, yeah, how much did, did, did the focus center on Trump realizing that he was voicing something that a lot of people agreed with and already felt as, as you know, this conveyor of racism, as opposed to this, the systems of racism that also um, existed and still exist now that there's a new person in office. That is such an important observation and one that I absolutely agree with. I think in some ways, that's what makes it sort of the, the fact that there was this embodiment, this personification of these broader, you know, societal forces, sort of original sin within American society, and certainly within both foreign and domestic policy, as well as we think about sort of these immigrant communities and, and how they're experiencing 
these different policies as well. So, in, you know, as I'll say it this way, as a former middle school teacher myself, I was certainly aware if I'm going to be able to access some of these really entrenched, nuanced, and purposefully hidden dynamics, we're going to need concrete, tangible ways to access and analyze them, right? And so in this case, the, the comments and policy proposals that candidate Trump was providing certainly unearthed some of those, but I might think, you know, I might refer to it as yet another example of the iceberg model, right? Where this is just what's above the surface, but we know that there's a lot underneath that is related to what we're able to observe. So what else did you learn in the study? Well, as I've been mulling over what you're, what you ask in terms of how does this particular situation fit into a larger understanding of the prevalence of discrimination in, in U.S. society and in U.S. history, I'm wanting to draw back on some of the comments that the students made. So one of the pieces that was extremely helpful for me in finally bringing this analysis to fruition was this idea of use of history. I, I will admit that here at my university, a, a history professor colleague sort of laughed when I mentioned that. She's like, oh yeah, that's, yes, that's very fundamental. Like, how, how is that not a part of the conversation? But I'm um, rel- realizing that in uh, a TRSC article a few years ago, I think it was 2016, Nordgren had really highlighted the way that the term, the concept of use of history can be helpful in history education, not just in the field of history. And so one of the pieces that this use of history helps to connect the dots with is how the students were identifying the historical prevalence of discrimination, racism in particular, in their seventh grade vocabulary, as a way of bolstering or sort of protecting their own identities as immigrants, as Muslim Americans, as Mexican Americans. And so they, one of the quotes that helped to sort of embody this was one of the students saying, there's still a lot of racist people. And so this really, what I hear in that is this naming, this recognition that racism has a long and uh, relevant history in the United States, and that if we're going to address it, if we're going to be resilient or resist um, this racism, we're going to have to name it. And so students, of course, then in response to to this, excuse me, would talk about Martin Luther King Jr. and some of those um, movement pieces that help to inspire them to think about by helping them think about what it means to resist that racism. I have a question that uh, takes us back a little bit. When you were when you were talking to students about like what different aspects of history that they thought were important or 
there who were like the, the big names in history. Did you see a difference in how they were responding? Uh, and was it just, did you see like the political concept, context of like the, the election also bleeding into that as well? That's a great question. It wasn't apparent to me originally if that was the case, but I certainly can say that political figures featured prominently in those responses. So Abraham Lincoln, George Washington. So your uh, monument people. Right. These. So I, I do have a, a piece um, in the Journal of Social Studies Research that actually came out around the same time as the, this TRSC piece that we're discussing. And in that piece, I really dug into the fact that students were analyzing U.S. history and drawing on sort of three narratives. And so, yeah, these monument people definitely reflected a nation-building narrative, a very progress-oriented narrative. But then students also talked about or, or um, their responses reflected a focus on discrimination. And then the third narrative was a focus on equality. And so, yeah, their responses, both in terms of events and in terms of historical figures, individuals in U.S. history, really mapped onto one or more of those narratives. It's there, there's some irony, right, in the in the kind of the nation building figures who, who are all very flawed and had their own roles in, in, in oppressive systems and societies. And oftentimes what students may refer to and hang on to is some of the nostalgia around them. Right. I mean, I think the, we, we have a problem you know, uh, in in the United States history. I, I think I uh, I've seen it. It was in one of the um, teaching tolerance. I think hard history references it, that they said, you know, sometimes a lot of times that what a lot of citizens of the United States have wanted and been taught is nostalgia, not history. Right. It's like these stories that they make up. And unfortunately, that works the other way too, right? Where we get, we even get stories about Lincoln as as someone who fought for racial justice, right? Which is which is quite a bit too simplistic of a way to, <laughs> of a, of a way to put that, right? And there were people at that time who did fight for racial justice very clearly, right? That was the dedication of their life. Who don't get the same attention? So it's just you think a lot about like who when these students who who are we give them to turn to, right? What what figures are we giving them to turn to and and so for me, you know, like, and I've mentioned this many times on the podcast and, and we had uh, Eric Armstrong Dunbar previously, when we talk about George Washington, I want, I actually want them to cite own a judge's resilience and resistance as an enslaved woman who escaped, right? That act, that's a really profound, brave act that she made in her life to escape. And she never got to hold political office. She never got to hold any of these but her, she, her story is more relevant probably for many of these students who are seeing their own political trauma, right? To look at her rather than to refer back to George Washington, who was one of her oppressors who continued to pursue her. So, so who we teach about in history really has implications for our values, of course, today. But we also got to get, you know, it, I, we got to get it accurate too, right? We don't want to just sell another form of nostalgia, you know, in cases. So... Yeah, so I think I think the study is really helpful in, in in helping to see the way that students navigate some of these issues and how we can still do a better job in, in K-12 education. So what advice do you have for educators who are, uh, you know, trying to support students while dealing with this political trauma um, in their classroom? Absolutely. 
I really appreciate the work done specifically on political trauma in the last few years. And so that's something that I would definitely want to highlight for researchers and for, for teachers. Um, so the work of Sandel and, and colleagues would be something that I would highlight. Um, within that in particular, I believe that this study helps to insert or to suggest that historical knowledge is a part of that framework that students are already using when they're needing to resist or be resilient in the face of political trauma. And so that's something that I would encourage teachers to think about, what is it that I'm teaching? And how does this help to provide clarity on in, in the face of sort of the turmoil that our, my students are facing. So the, the literature on a pedagogy of political trauma talks about some of this framework, spells it out already, but I believe that regardless of what classes we're teaching, it doesn't even have to be a, a social studies class, of course, um, but within the social studies, whether it's a civics class, uh, economics class, history class, there are going to be important connections to say, okay, this is how the system works. This is how the system holds up under this stress. This is how we, as members of the society, can work within the system. And then the last piece, of course, is that we're not only members of a broader society with these macro structures, but we're also members of classroom communities and local uh, communities. And so working at acknowledging the trauma is just a really important place to start. As I've you know, alluded to, as I've named a few times, the fact that I'm a white cisgender heterosexual male very much influences how I communicate and operate in a classroom. And so some of the approaches that have been important for me are to name, sort of model that um, in a classroom context, naming both who I am and how that influences how I see the world, but also how I'm experiencing this turmoil as a way of creating space, opening up space or facilitating space that students can then choose how they would like to also contribute to that conversation. Paul Yoder, thank you so much for joining us today and giving us a lot to digest. Thank you so much for having me. I've really appreciated the conversations. We have too. We have too. Well, we certainly hope people can keep having them online. Where can people find you and your work online? I have been connecting with folks on ResearchGate. I don't know if you all have been talking about that much on the podcast. I'm not on Twitter, so I uh, won't find you there. I also appreciate some of the professional communities on Facebook, including the KUFA community, the college and university community connected with NCSS. Absolutely. We'll be sure to uh, link to your ResearchGate page in, in the show notes so that people can find that. And we will not link to your non-existent Twitter account. That would not be helpful. <laughs> 
Thank you so much again, uh, Dr. Yoder, for, for joining us today. We, we uh, certainly do hope to continue the discussion online, checking out ResearchGate and in other spaces. Now at the Visions of Education podcast, we're all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun or creative in education, or you just want to chat, and we get it, sometimes we get bored too, hit us up at Visions of Ed. We're also sometimes on Facebook. And as a bonus, if you haven't already, Subscribe to Visions of Education on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere you want us to be. And Michael and I are just a couple unpaid interns doing a podcast, five years running now. So leave us a five-star review, right? Isn't it been? Yeah, five years. Actually, I I think just now we are realizing on air, we missed our five-year anniversary, which was oh last goodness. which was last month. It was just a, a few weeks ago. We Is that five... the paper anniversary? The paper anniversary. What's that? Like there's like different levels. Like there's a, I think one anniversary you get wood, one anniversary you get paper. Oh. One it's like there's things. I don't under, I don't know them. Yes. Yes. Well, you could buy me paper products. I prefer my paper from small um, Pennsylvania firms if possible, if you're going to buy me any paper products. Thank you, Michael. And so something you do have to do digitally now, unfortunately, you can mail us five stars. We'd both appreciate that. If you make stars Uh-oh. out of paper, we will... you can also name stars after our podcast, I think. Yes. Yes. The, the, the commodification of the stars, please name things in space after us that someone decided <laughs> we could do. That would be uh, a good anniversary gift. We, I, we accept, we will accept that in, in, you know, in replacement of paper for our fifth year, <laughs> if that's the one. But leave us a five-star review. That's the other option. If none of these options suit you, leave us a five-star review. It helps people find this podcast. And especially with what we just did, we would especially like to thank Zach Seitz of Wiley High School and the University Zach of North Seitz. Texas for editing down many of the things you heard. I, you don't have any idea how much has to be taken out. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Pixie. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off.